Welcome to the Pod of the Sleepiest, your fortnightly healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. Sponsored by the American Statistical Association and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. We're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science and regulation straight to your earbuds. No fluff, no sale pictures, just important technical ideas described well to keep you up to date. All in the time it takes to get to work. And here's your host, Glenn Wright Colopy. Hi everyone, welcome back to our episode introducing the medical device and diagnostic section of the American Statistical Association. This is part two of our episode with Martin Ho from the FDA and later Greg Maislin from the University of Pennsylvania. In the first part of the episode, what we talked about were the variety of activities that the MDD section has, particularly for the benefit of its youngest members to learn and grow as statisticians. And now we're going to talk a little bit more about a topic that has been getting a lot of traction and interest within our field. So while I have you on here, because uh, I very much like your quote about everyone's a Bayesian. <laughs> yeah. We've uh, well, cross you know, Bayesian sometimes. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Every, everyone's a Bayesian until you get too many integrals, and yes. then you become more frequentist. <laughs> and then we curse the person who can think in more integrals than us. Um, yeah. But the uh, the issue of uh, Bayesian adaptive trials, because we know that a lot of work has been done in Bayesian adaptive trials, but when you're mentioning other things like uh, latent variables and latent mm-hmm. variable analysis, you know that those those are also heavily used in Bayesian statistics. What are the sure. variety of methods that, for example, the CDRH was looking at and what you're currently looking at in Bayesian methods? So just like what, what is the broad scope of these Bayesian methods that are used beyond just Bayesian adaptive trials? Uh, it's a very good question. I think, of course, the Bayesian framework is also actively used within the diagnostic space. And I would say that especially for the new digital health technologies, um, they are literally everyone is a Bayesian. Because it seems like the new generation of the biomedical engineers, they really uh, get the right idea about how to capture the uncertainty and make the data and make the algorithms being able to be adaptive and learning from the past experience and keeps on improving the performance of the algorithms. So therefore, they have zero problem when uh, we're talking about using a Bayesian approach. And rather, it would be rather difficult to explain to them the traditional frequentist type of approach when it comes to the wearable devices such as, you know, Fitbit or Apple Watch and and whatnot. So I think uh, it seems like at a wearable device space, I think Bayesian is getting a very upper hand. So this is yet another area that, you know, Bayesian statistics has been very, very active. And the third space that I would like to argue is the benefit risk assessment space which I also was lucky to be, you know, taking part in some of the international effort to try to uh, have a better understanding about uh, how to do that. So the gist of that is traditionally the role of statistician is we are doing our best to define or to develop a study endpoint that can provide the, the highest signal to noise ratio. And then afterwards, then uh, we design a study so that we can isolate the potential confounding factors and the biases. And at the same time, we also try to make the measurement even more precise. But despite all these blood sweats and uh, sleepless hours, the end result is just a point estimate with the uncertainty around them. So being a statistician, I would argue that in order to make a decision based on this estimate, 
statisticians should definitely play a role in uh, working with our clinician uh, colleagues to make a better or more consistent, transparent decisions. For example, for regulatory decisions or for other type of decisions. In fact, I think in most of corporate America environments, they've already quite used to using the decision science method to make certain type of decision, for example, the go and no-go investment and, and funding for uh, the drugs or for their programs. Therefore, I think Bayesian obviously is built for this type of assessment as well, because the Bayesian not only allow us to think about, to formalize the learning process of the ongoing experiment, but more important, it can also systematically incorporate the weight or the loss function, if you will, across the outcomes, uh, across the sample space, so that it can greatly help us to put our challenging questions in a framework that is tractable. As you said, I know people may not like those integral as the numbers are growing, but it doesn't matter as long as it's the machine who are doing it. Even though we need to be, of course, uh, careful about uh, how to construct the questions to, to make it more computational feasible. But at the same time, it's always nice to put a problem into, I would say, a, a formula or not formula, but rather a mathematical format so that people would know what they are talking about. Instead of just having people thinking about all these different factors that some may be important than the others, but we don't know by how much it would be very important for us to provide some tools that can help inform the decision if the decision is very difficult to make using the traditional way of weighting the benefits and risks. Well, you know, as someone who does nearly strictly Bayesian analysis on time series from wearables, well, with the volume of data that's coming, <laughs> not want, you know, anything other than some type of Bayesian regularization to help yeah. inform those and also just to basically to use the Bayesian approaches in order to just encode what we know about these real systems, the real physiology that's behind them, the real uh, uh, digital processing and the actual digital signal and the device noise effects. We want Bayesian methods to be encoding those types of things as opposed to pretending that they don't exist or that we have enough data, you know, just to bleed it out in the first place. Exactly. Um, and uh, is especially for when it comes to like, you know, point estimates and having to make go, no go decisions. Personally, I very much like the intuition behind saying, you know, well, uh, we are uncertain about our underlying assumptions. And therefore, by providing a distribution around them, we are sort of encoding that uncertainty. And then we can see the range of outcomes that sort of are derived from that uncertainty. But other people also criticize these priors as being subjectively defined. For example, it's fairly rare that we have truly good prior information that really means that we have like these data defined priors. It's more than these priors are fairly subjective in our selection and people criticize Bayesian methods because of that. But again, the, the counter argument to that of course is that um, at least Bayesians are putting out their subjective assumptions to the forefront where frequent to sort of tuck them uh, behind the curtain. What is your impression on having outright subjective priors that are apparent versus sort of these more hidden assumptions of frequentist methods? How, how do you respond to the subjectivity issue with Bayesianism? Excellent questions. To me, um, just like not all clinical trials evidence are created equal, uh, not all subjective information created equal. 
in the sense that it's very different if a subjective comment are coming from a lay person who doesn't know a thing about uh, neurological devices uh, versus an opinion coming from someone who are experts in that space. And what's the difference between a, the well-informed person and the not so informed person is that the well-informed person, they can provide a more meaningful or more reliable prior, so to speak, uh, or subjective assessment of a certain question is because the information that had been accumulated in his mind and there was an ongoing learning process that tried to incorporate all this information in a very subtle, you know, human way to build this information to reach the point that, you know, is being summarized in the, uh, in a subjective distribution that an expert is giving today. So I think when people are saying certain basic methods, you know, is the prior is too subjective, I would say it depends on who he is giving the prior. And at the same time, if a person who is a layperson doesn't know a thing and meanwhile give us a, you know, highly skilled prior distribution, then I think I would be able to judge uh, whether that is a, a meaningful prior from my perspective to evaluate the analysis results. If I got to see you know, an expert a prior and being put into uh, the analysis, then I can also uh, you know, make my own judgment to see whether the result is plausible. Perhaps the most you know, easiest example or the most quoted or cited example that people use is that you know, in frequentist approach, I mean, the best estimate is always coming from the experiment that we have in hand. So in other words, this is what it is. But in a medical context, if very experienced doctors seeing a, a trial or perhaps a measurement coming from a patient, that person can make a judgment based on their prior or subjective assessment right away to determine whether it is likely to be an outlier or just basically a laboratory mistake. But I mean, without this pretext uh, or without a whole bunch of data being provided beforehand for frequentist approach, they simply cannot make that judgment because, you know, the, the latest number that's coming from the lab without the previous data points, the frequentist has to accept that as the estimate. So therefore, I think from my perspective, even though Bayesian approach, the result is driven by the prior, by the subjective prior, but at the same time, I would say that for those who know the information uh, or the subject matter, their opinion or their uh, assessment of certain things should be biased because they know what is right and what is wrong and what is likely and what is not. So just like when we are asking an, a physician who has you know, decades of experience, their the opinions tends to be very, very sharp or acute versus the other people, they may have a much more non-informative prior. But again, not only that, uh, you know, the subjective prior is important, but more importantly, people why the decision maker, which is the user of the analysis result, is to assess, you know, how sensitive the study result or the analysis conclusion is, depending on different type of subjective prior being plugged into the analysis. For that, I mean, frequentist approach simply doesn't provide such mechanism for us to make that kind of assessment. Yeah, I think one of the things that you've highlighted that I really think is important is that when you have these people with, you know, years of experience where they've looked at this type of data again and again and again over long courses, and they know what you're trying to derive from your statistical or your predictive model, they know mm -hmm. what the outputs look like, they know what the outputs look like. And the Bayesian framework provides them, for example, not just with a way to regularize their model, 
but actually sort of decide how the priorities of different parameters stack up. So how the strength of these, you know, relative comparators, not just to regularize one parameter in your model, but how these multiple parameters should essentially be comparing to each other. And it's really nice to have a coherent uh, principled framework, i.e. Bayesianism, that allows us to sort of impute those priorities in the model. Because, you know, um, the, the actual priorities in the model might be very different from what would just happen if you just glopped all the data down onto a, an, an uninformed model and just saw what happened, especially when you bring into things like experimental design yeah. and the observation process where, you know, these things don't really care yeah. about your model. They just care about sort of the process that generates that one specific type of data. And it yeah. might not actually represent the true underlying data generating process. Um, yeah, I can't be disagree. We've uh, talked quite a bit about digital health. Did you want to talk at all about the digital health initiatives for the medical device section? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, so uh, before I joined the Center for Biologics, I, I was the leader of developing the real-world performance component of the digital health initiative at Center for Devices. And I think this is a very groundbreaking paradigm from uh, Center for Devices. The difference between uh, a wearable devices from the traditional medical devices are at least two ways. The first way is that the wearable devices, at least existing range of products, they're relatively lower risk than uh, the other more traditional devices such as heart valve or different stimulations or pacemakers. So therefore, the risk aspect of these devices is relatively low. And the second aspect of this, um, these type of digital health devices are their connectivity and their real-time responsiveness. Compared to the traditional medical devices, they are relatively unconnected, and the data points tend to be uh, much less frequent. So therefore, based on those two characteristics, I mean, wearable devices are actually a, a perfect area where the center for devices can practice uh, one of its paradigm of thinking, which is bring about products that has relatively low risk. But at the same time, if they can detect some suboptimality or some things that they need to fix, they can simply send a patches through internet to their wearable devices to correct their algorithms. And at the same time, they also can collect the real-time response from the users uh, or the patients back to the data center every day so that they can uh, have an almost close to real-time assessment of not only if there is any uh, bad adverse events, but also they can even know how many people have been turned the device on, uh, how many patients have wear them, and for how long, and when, and under what circumstances. So therefore, we are, it provides a, almost like a, a close to perfect surveillance you know, scenario from a device's perspective versus uh, the traditional medical devices such as pacemakers or heart valves. Something has to go really wrong and the person go to a, a hospitals and they have suspicions about the uh, malfunction of certain devices and then they have to TL all this, you know, going through a relatively long, you know, uh, investigations and conclude and trying to figure out what's the reason of or to determine whether the device was malfunction as a cause of an adverse event. So therefore, the idea of the initiative is that for companies who are at the cutting edge of these wearable devices, they know uh, what they are doing. In fact, they have a lot more information about uh, you know, how the device works and the performance of their algorithms. 
And they also have much more resources when it comes to monitoring the performance of their devices. So therefore, in order to avoid stifling their innovations, rather the center for devices want to be a partner and collaborator to move this area forward by first for those who have maintained a very good uh, being a, a very good manufacturer and designer they would be uh, recognized for their good practices within a company and then for those companies if the conditions are satisfied and if their quality of the company not only the products but the company uh, if the company is good, then this company could be recognized and certified. And afterwards, the devices that are manufactured or designed by these certified companies can go directly to market. In exchange for that freedom, they need to provide a more real-time assessment from a center for devices so that uh, when things go wrong, FDA would receive a much more tiny update about these errors or these signals, and they can collaboratively working with these certified companies or organizations to develop a fix and seeing those fix deliver back to the devices through the internet. So this is a dream uh, of the center director of devices, uh, Jeff Sherman and the Digital Health Unit Division Director, Akul Patel. And so they believe that by doing this, by using this approach, that would really reduce the amount of time that uh, a device, a wearable device that would require to submit the devices to the FDA through the traditional network, which can take a month easily for it to be reviewed and then to be cleared. In this new approach, you can see that since the review is based on the company, not the product. So that would make the proposition much more feasible. And at the same time, there will be a uh, feedback loop about the performance of the, not only their products, but also the company itself in its response to some safety signals within the product. And at the end of the day, the FDA will work with their will work with them and consider the calibrate the level of approval or clearance that the company can still process. So in other words, it will be an ongoing process between the FDA and the certified company rather than their submission-based relationship. The new digital health initiative will be an ongoing collaborations. Well, that is an absolute waterfall of information, especially of just really cool ideas. And these are very challenging problems, but they are extremely practical and they're extremely uh, grounded in good clinical science. Fact is, we'll probably need to have another few episodes just to cover all the varieties of information there is in that. But yeah, there, there are many things to uh, address in this. But you know, just just even one of those is the fact that, um, as we were talking about before, we don't really know what the effectiveness is for many things given different yeah. clinical scenarios and different uh, clinical protocols. And so, as we know, when a device, for example, is being approved to begin with, if it's only tested on a healthy set of patients or a very specified set of uh, unhealthy patients, we don't really know how that changes the moment we change the clinical indication or how it works on subsets of patients or then different populations entirely. So it seems like this could be a very useful framework to actually very quickly evaluate new efficacies, allow people to innovate, not essentially punishing them for innovation. You know, you don't want to basically say, yeah, you can innovate, but you're going to have to wait. You know, it, it's going to create a six-month turnaround or a year-long <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to say that adding on to what you just said is 
uh, again, there's another hit uh, on the head of the nail is that the reasons why the Centerful device want to do this program is because to encourage the company to improve and upgrade itself rather than punishing them for being responsive and being innovative. And that is exactly the idea that, that Dallas Jordan is so eager to set it up. And I think I also wanted to say that while the clinical trial space, people are, you know, very thinking about the effective problems a lot, but we are not the only one. Just imagine that if you are in a highly competitive marketplace, if I were some, let's say Apple or Samsung, I want to make my product stand out. I would really careful about how I can measure in some way the performance of my product compared to my competitors in real life. And then after uh, collecting this information, they have to figure out a way to uh, implement those improvements in a feasible manner. And this is exactly the industry know-how that the FDA Center for Devices and especially digital health team, me included, learned a lot when we were conducting quite a bit of site visits to all these outstanding digital health vendors to see how they have, you know, in the marketplace context to collect those, what they call performance, but from our perspective, yes, almost like a, a you know, a corresponding part as effectiveness when the product reach you know in the user's hands and they constantly collect those information measure their performance and improve their products so such a very very um exciting to see you know in, in marketplace it, they are also doing more or less the same thing not to create another tangential branch but what you said did remind <laughs> me of something um you know going from research into industry and starting to go from you know simply worrying about creating and automating these uh, Bayesian uh, time series models for prediction and patient deterioration detection, but then actually have to create the entire AI system around it, all the support systems and the algorithms that curate the data and pipeline the data and check that your assumptions haven't been violated, and then produce an output that is viewable by a person. As you might know, there was a NIPS paper a few years ago uh, that talks about the, um, the technical debt of machine learning systems, where it talks about all the things that need to go into supporting a machine learning system so that you know it's functioning and working at all times. And yeah. I couldn't help but wonder, you know, doing some of this work for my own uh, purposes, you know, it's like, well, this is really tough and it's tough for the Googles and the Apples to accomplish. And just curious, it's like, well, how's the FDA going to know what to do and how are they going to do this? And it's really exciting to hear that essentially you guys are getting those pipelines. So you aren't needing to bring that skill set in-house. You're simply listening to that skill set that's already out there in industry who are working on the cutting edge. Yes, yes. Again, it's, uh, you really are capturing the essence of the spirit of the program is the recognition of the expertise and the depth of subject matter experts inside the industry uh, you know, versus the FDA. And we are very honestly come forth as someone who are trying to learn from the industry in terms of these algorithms and how to make it works and how to make them robust. So I think, again, is the perfect insight that just in the existing framework and the user fee funding scheme is impossible for the FDA to have the depth of knowledge of these uh, wide range of products comparable to, you know, to Google, Apple, or the other uh, industries who have their niche of knowledge regarding their products. So we are focusing rather on the outcome rather than the algorithm itself. 
So uh, therefore, yes, I think that's exactly the idea. Well, I think we've covered a huge amount today, and I think it's great to have this conversation because it, to be blunt, shows how awesome the medical device and diagnostic section is. The section is giving you access to people like Martin and Greg and real innovative experts, both from industry and in regulatory and in academia, showing that we aren't just talking about old, dusty statistical issues. We're actually really trying to get to the meat of the most pressing technologically advanced issues that there are today. So uh, I hope that anyone who's listening who finds this interesting can see that there's a huge value in being involved in the medical device and diagnostic section. So come on in. The water is warm. And um, you can definitely get a lot by being involved. And one more activity is the medical device and diagnostics idea exchange, which Greg is kindly going to be covering in the next podcast episode with us. So definitely come back and listen to that uh, if the time comes. But until then, Martin, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Pod of Asclepius. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? Drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on Statistical Learning and Data Science section on medical devices and diagnostics and North Carolina chapter, as well as the Institution of Engineering and Technology. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors or anyone else not saying the word. <laughs>